best institutions out there literally never stop recruiting, ever. Your program is only as good as your advisors. The average advisor in our channel is not managing the majority uh, of their clients' investable assets, so they're an afterthought. They're not a trusted advisor. That's not good. And our penetration rate is in somewhere between 4 and 7%. So how can you not just look at those numbers and say, clearly, we need more advisors? So most advisors in our channel have too many clients in their books, so they're underserving the top end of their book and they're over-serving the bottom end of their book and they don't have majority wallet share in any segment of their book. We need more wealth managers and that's how we have to recruit. So when you see an advisor that right from the start, your gut is telling you that's the person and then you drag your feet, you lose that person. You don't want to start recruiting without any bullets in your gun, so to speak. And what I mean by that is you have to be really good at describing to a candidate the value proposition of working with your organization. But let me give you a framework to think about when you're recruiting. And this is a methodology for rigorous and successful recruiting. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Stathis Mattel Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-producer of these podcasts. This series focuses on industry-leading performance, success stories, and key business intelligence that will help you meet your leadership objectives. In this episode, called Optimizing Advisor Recruiting, Jennifer Tedder of Satera Financial Institutions will interview my partner, Scott Stathis, on how to successfully optimize the advisor recruiting process. Scott and I would like to express our sincere appreciation to our friends at Satera for their support in making this podcast possible. Now, I'll turn it over to Jennifer and Scott. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Fate of Recruiting webinar, where we interview industry experts on all matters financial professional recruiting. And for all of those who don't know me, my name is Jennifer Tedder, and I'm the Advisor Recruiting Manager here at Satera Financial Institutions. I've been in the industry for 26 years. I worked for a major insurance company as an insurance agent, a large retail bank as a financial advisor, and then for a credit union in program management as a dual employee. And so with me is Scott Stathis, and most of you know him. Scott, I'll let you talk for a minute. All right. Thanks, Jennifer. So uh, I'm Scott Stathis. I've been in the bank and credit union channel since 1991 in a variety of, of roles and responsibilities, uh, everything from fintech to to research and, and consulting. My my firm currently does basically three things. So we we do a we do benchmarking and performance research in, in the bank and credit union channel for any institution that has an investment and insurance program. So we collect data from the industry on a monthly basis, and then we report back to the industry benchmarking metrics that allow executives running programs to benchmark the performance of their programs across a variety of, of metrics. And uh, obviously we do consulting, do a series of executive forums, and we do podcasts. All of that is focused on sharing business intelligence that will enable our channel to be more competitive in the overall financial services landscape. Because we have a ton of potential and we're not living up to it yet, but we're getting better. So I don't know if there's anything else I need to say about that and me, Jennifer, let me hand it back to you and then we can dive in. All right. I think everybody knows who Scott Stathis is. All right. So before I actually ask you the first question, I kind of want to set up the background for why we're talking about recruiting. So like most industries, the investment advisory space saw a significant impact from COVID-19. Thankfully, we're not talking about it so much anymore, but we did see that impact. In June of 2021, there were 740,000 and a few extra reps. And that was down from January 2020 by 3.3%. This was the fastest decline in the number of registered reps since the financial crisis of 2007-2008. And reps were more likely in 2020 than in past years to stay at their current firm. As a matter of fact, there was a 17.4 decrease in rep movement altogether. And that was actually four times as much as we would normally see. But for some good news, we have had approximately 38,000 new advisors join and be registered in 2021. 
it is still a little bit less than what we are losing as far as reps retiring and actually just dropping out of the industry. But with those statistics, recruiting can be uh, very difficult, especially post-pandemic. But that's why we're here. And so my first question to you, Scott, is how should a program decide whether they need to add another advisor or more? So that question is not as easy to answer these days as it used to be. So the the real answer is it depends what you want to be when you grow up. And when I say that, the program, do you want to be just a bank investment program or do you want to be a true wealth management program? And there's a significant difference. And you can be both, but you have to have that vision of what you want to be when you grow up and recruit appropriately. The old rules of thumb uh, related to how many advisors you need per whatever, 100,000 or million of deposits, advisors per branch, et cetera. Are basically out the window. So I'll, this is going to be a long answer, Jennifer, um, just warning you. <laughs> but so I'll get into some of that and why the old rules don't work anymore. But let's just all try and agree to the fact that less is more. And what I mean by that is that the less that an advisor has to cover from a footprint standpoint, the better a good advisor will do. So the average bank-based advisor spreads themselves way too thin these days. They're trying to cover too much. And the result is awful penetration and awful wallet share. The average advisor in our channel is not managing the majority uh, of their clients' investable assets. So they're an afterthought. They're not a trusted advisor. That's not good. And our penetration rate is, depending on the institution, somewhere between four and 7%. So how can you not just look at those numbers and say, clearly, we need more advisors, right? And just that alone will tell you you need more advisors and, and starts giving an indication of the type of advisors you need. So most advisors in our channel have too many clients in their books. So they're underserving the top end of their book and they're over-serving the bottom end of their book. And they don't have majority wallet share in, in any segment of their book. Just not a good place to be. We are getting better but that's where we are. There is a difference between what I call customer service mentality, and this is the mentality of an advisor. So a difference between customer service mentality and wealth management mentality. We need more wealth managers, and that's how we have to recruit. We have to know what a wealth manager is before we start recruiting for wealth managers. And the definition of that is something that's important. We'll dive into that. On the other end of the spectrum, we need good remote advisors because geography doesn't matter anymore. Your footprint doesn't matter anymore, frankly. The best investment, and I shouldn't say investment, the best wealth management program in our channel right now, their average advisor productivity is $1.4 million. That's average. At any point in time, 40% of the clients that the wealth managers are working with are not clients of the institution. So they're not stuck in their bubble. They're looking outside of their deposit base, their branches, whatever. They're true wealth managers and they're bringing in new clients to the, to the institution. But like I said, we have wealth managers on one end of the spectrum. We need good remote advisors on the other end of the spectrum. And in the middle, we need good associate advisors. And those are the things we have to recruit for. We can talk a little bit about branch-based advisors, but we can no longer be in the mindset that branch-based advisors are the only things that we, the only types of people we recruit. So here's some other things to think about. One is we want to keep assets in the institution. And what do, what do I mean by that? Many of you have heard me say that the biggest frustration that, that I have when I look at our channel is that regardless of the fact that everybody starts with 100% of their assets in a bank or a credit union, because that's where our first paychecks go. Regardless of that fact, when or as people get wealthier, those wealth assets leave our institution. The majority of them do. So we're really bad at keeping assets in the institution as our clients get wealthier. There is no reason for us to let that happen, because if we're if we're working in a highly functional mode, those assets won't leave the institution because we would be better at managing those wealth assets. So what does it have to do with recruiting? We have to recruit the type of advisors that think of themselves as wealth managers and realize that there are just a ton of opportunities in our institution if the institution is structured properly to support wealth management. And we'll talk about that for a little bit as well. But those are the types of advisors we have to recruit, those wealth advisors that can help us keep assets in the institution. 
I talked about penetration rates in wallet share. They're incredibly low. So again, how can you not say we need more advisors when we're dealing with those penetration rates in wallet share that we are? We know today the best advisors in our channel, most of these are second story advisors or what I call wealth advisors. They have about 250 clients in their book. So I literally, this was good timing. I had dinner last night with a wealth advisor from Truist. He is one of a team of three and his name is Ken. So I said, Ken, after he told me about his practice, I said, how many clients do you have in your book of business among your team of three? He said, 15. I said, what? He said, yeah, we manage 15 wealthy families. That's it. And we make a really good living off of that. That's an extreme, but we need to do that kind of stuff, frankly. There's no reason why any of our institutions couldn't have highly functional wealth management teams like that, that are not stuck in our bubble. We're guilty of the mentality of just assessing the need for advisors based on the bubble that we're in, meaning our bank or our credit union. And that's really bad thinking. We have to break out of that. And this guy that I had dinner with last night, he just put a spotlight on that. Yeah, 15 wealthy families. And they are the irony is that none of them were truest clients. He brought them all from the firm he was with, his team, from the firm he was with prior. So he's been with Truist for less than a year. It was a really good recruit. And he brought all the team, brought all their clients with them. Again, do you want a true wealth program? The other thing that we are really bad at doing is looking at segmentation penetration. But we really have to look at the different wealth segments in our institution and get an assessment of what our penetration is into each one of those wealth segments. I mentioned geography doesn't matter, advisor tiering. So that's the other thing, right? So when you talk about recruiting, what are you recruiting for? If you have remote advisors, if you have associate advisors, if you have branch-based advisors, and if you have second story advisors, you need a, a clear and distinct recruiting plan for each one of those. And it's pretty easy to look across the spectrums of your advisors and say, all right, where do we need more help? And are we uh, doing enough to home grow talent? And if not, how do we do that? And then how do we, as we home grow talent and move advisors from one level of the career path to another, how do we backfill for that? So for example, every time you move an advisor to the second story, there's a recruiting need there, right? Or there's a need to move somebody in your institution to the spot that person came out of, but if you think of it as a conveyor belt, that means somewhere there's a recruiting need because you have position. So the other thing to think about, and I won't spend too much time in this, but is specialty advisors. So a significant part of our future ability to differentiate ourselves in the financial services industry has to do with our ability to recruit specialists. So advisors, and what I mean by specialists are a couple of things. They're advisors that specialize in a certain niche, potentially, or advisors that can specialize in working with very specific people in our institution. So let me explain both of them. I'll just give you an example. So I was listening to a Michael Kitts' podcast, and he was interviewing a woman who was a specialty advisor. And her specialty, because she went through a divorce that wasn't easy and she is now a single mom. She has built a very lucrative practice on working with nothing but single moms who are recently divorced. So that's a specialty, right? So you can think of, if you sit back and think of all the different types of those niches that are out there, there are a ton of them. And you should never stop recruiting for specialty advisors because an advisor that establishes a niche like that, there's another one that I recently heard interviewed that specializes in nothing but young professionals that are working with the big consulting companies like BCG, et cetera, because they are typically just starting a family or just bought a house, just starting a family. And they're in their thirties to mid forties. They're making a ton of money and they're not good at managing it. And this advisor specialized in nothing but that. And like I said, geography doesn't matter. So his practice was based wherever, and he's working with those types of clients all across the country. Now, the other type of specialty advisor to think about when you think about recruiting is, for example, if you have a business banking department in your institution, you have business bankers and business lenders. They typically 
do not trust the advisors in our programs. There are a lot of reasons for it. Some of them are valid, some of them are not. However, there is nothing better than having an advisor that specializes in working with business bankers because there are huge opportunities there. Any type of lender, frankly, but let's just talk about business bankers because it's a good example. From a recruiting standpoint, you can determine that you want to hire an advisor that is a pro for working with your business banker and sharing those types of opportunities. You and the business banker sit down and you design what that advisor should look like, right? What is an optimized advisor that works with you, Mr. or Ms. Business Banker? What should that advisor be like? What should their traits be like? How should they function with you? Blah, blah, the whole thing. You paint that vision and you have a document that describes that. And then you both go out and recruit an interview for that type of advisor. So you're in it together, you're hiring together, there's a commitment right from the start. And those types of situations, we're guilty of not thinking about those types of specialty advisors because we're, we're stuck in the branch-based advisor mindset. You got to recruit for those types of advisors and you do it as a team with other centers of influence in your organization. And this way you have built-in buy-in when that person is hired because you did it together. You designed the position together, you interviewed together, et cetera, right? So you should always be recruiting. Here are the different client segments, right? And these segments are based on investable assets. And that's the way you should be looking at it. And your institution has, if you're doing loans, for example, right? You know, rent within ranges, what the investable assets are of your institution's clients. So you should look at each one of these segments because we have to get really good at data, you should be able to assess what percentage of penetration you have in each one of these segments. And I guarantee you that you're going to have much less of a penetration in the higher segments than the lower segments, which is the opposite of what you want. So you need to recruit advisors that can help you increase penetration in those upper segments. These are the types of analysis that need to be done when you think about what is a good recruiting plan. All right, I'm going to pause because I've been talking for a while there and hand it back to you, Jen. Did that kind of answer your question? <laughs> that was awesome. I was actually going to ask you a little bit more about specialty advisors and what your thoughts were in this regard, but I think you shared quite a bit of that already. Then the next, what I do want to ask you though, is what are some of the biggest mistakes that are made during the recruiting process? So the biggest mistake I think is not acting fast enough. So when you see an advisor that right from the start, your gut is telling you that's the person, and then you drag your feet, you lose that person because everybody else sees the same thing. So you have to have your antenna up relative to when that right person sits in front of you. And sometimes not even sits in front of you. When you see the person's background on LinkedIn or when you get the resume in front of you or whatever, when you get that phone call, the biggest mistake is not acting quickly enough and losing that advisor that you've been waiting for all year. And I'll just leave it at that. That That is, there are others, but that that's the big one. Yeah, I think you said a, a good advisor, you only have about 30 days to capture him, right? Yeah. Or her. Yeah. All right. I did get a question uh, from the group. Although geography may not matter, many banks and credit unions are still in the eight to five mindset. How do we encourage program managers and advisors to approach management to get them to consider the remote advisor approach? So how do we get management basically to embrace remote advisors? It's one thing the pandemic taught us that remote work can be very efficient and effective and advisors are in the relationship business. And it's ironic that a lot of times during the pandemic, we figured out that relationships can develop sometimes more effectively when you're on things like Zoom, right? Because you're more comfortable, you're in your home, you see your, the kids jump in your lap or the dog runs by in the background, or you see a guitar in the background and you say, oh, you're a musician and you start talking about that. So it's a very interesting dynamic. So anyway, remote advisors, the, the one thing that, that I have seen in working with a lot of institutions is that if you hire the right remote advisors, they knock it out of the park. Their, their productivity can be phenomenal and they work with people, clients that are out of the typical footprint of the institution. I always tell a story of 
There's an advisor some of you might know uh, worked for Elevations Credit Union, still does in in Colorado. And four years ago now, he and his family decided they wanted to move to New Zealand, but he wanted to keep his job. So four years down the road, his business is bigger than it's ever been, and he's still working with all his U.S. clients from New Zealand. He flies back here once or twice a year to do annual meetings with his clients, but other than that, it's all remote, and he's killing it. So. <laughs> there are so many examples of uh, successful remote advisors. And basically what you have to do is get some of those success stories and just put them in front of executive management and say, hey, if we want to expand our client base, this is a great way to do it. If we want to get out of our bubble, if we don't want to be limited by our physical footprint, we can do this. And not only does it help us attract more clients to the institution, but it'll give us a better ability to, to, to penetrate our current client base as well, because the branch advisors are more focused on whoever's walking into the branch or whoever's getting referred from the people they're connected with in the branch. It's a passionate discussion that you have to have, but you have to get the passion for the discussion before you have the discussion. And so do your homework on it. But it, when it works, it works really well. There was oh. a, Jen, there's, there's another mistake that you asked me about mistakes that, 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 that people are recruiting make. The other big mistake is not knowing what you're recruiting for. And I think that's one of the other things we want to talk about, but that's a big mistake, not having a clear vision, not having that North Star uh, mm-hmm. in mind when, you're, when you begin the, the recruiting process. So that was my next question is, what are your thoughts on making the recruiting process more rigorous, focused, and successful? Yeah, so this is really important because most people don't don't think enough about the recruiting process before they start recruiting. But let me give you a framework to think about when you're recruiting. And this is a methodology for rigorous and successful recruiting. So the first thing you have to do, I say know what you're recruiting for. I mean that literally, right? Most people that recruit say, I need an advisor. That's not good enough. What kind of advisor do you need? And how should that advisor function if you make the right hire? So the first thing you have to do is create the vision for the optimized advisor. What does that perfect advisor in your institution look like? And that vision has to be specific. And what I mean by that is you should create a document that that basically is a descriptor of the perfect advisor. What is that advisor's mission? That's the start. What are the objectives of that advisor within your organization? And I'll give you examples of this. So that's two, the objectives. The first is the the mission. You're creating a mission statement for the perfect advisor. What are the objectives of the advisor? Two, three, what is the core methodology that advisor will use to achieve the objectives that you listed above? And then four, what are the results? So if if that advisor has the right mission, has clear objectives, uses the right methodology to achieve those objectives, what happens? What are the results? So that's the vision. Once you have that vision, I'll give you an example of how you create that vision. But once you have that vision, then you extract from that vision the decision-making factors. And I'll describe this literally. You created the vision by creating a document. Now you have that document in hand and you highlight the most important things that you just wrote. And those become a listing, literally a listing of decision-making factors. They're traits, habits, history that you're looking for from that person that, or from the advisor that you want to recruit, right? So you create the vision, you create a list of decision-making factors. From those decision-making factors that you just listed, you then create a set of interview questions because you want to interview in such a way that will enable you to determine if the person sitting in front of you has those factors that are most important for the role. So once you have those factors and those interview questions, then you create an assessment grid. And that's a pretty simple thing to do. So you take those decision-making factors that you listed and you put them in a spreadsheet. So that's the first column. The second column is a weighting column where you weight the importance of every one of those decision-making factors because some are more important than others, right? The third column is a rating column. So after you interview somebody, you put numbers in that third column that rates them relative to each decision-making factors. So now you have a scoring system because 
you have the decision-making factor, you have the weighting times the rating equals a score. And if you think of, let's say, 30 different decision-making factors at the bottom of that last column, you have a total for every person you interview. So if you interview five people, you have a score for five people. And that can be a very handy methodology for decision-making. So here's an example of a mission. And it's written in the first person. So to provide a client experience focused on growth, protection, and distribution of assets based on a deep understanding of my client's personal, family, and related circumstances that drive their financial needs. Okay, so that's a mission. If you, and if you sit and think about that sentence, there's a lot of stuff there to unpack. There's some powerful stuff there. So the objectives. Again, I'm not going to read through all this. I'll just read the, the first paragraph or two. But so my primary objective as a wealth, and this is for a wealth advisor. So you have to do this for every tier of advisor that you're hiring. So my primary objective as a wealth advisor is to become the trusted advisor for all my clients and hence to manage as close to 100% of their investable assets as possible. The only way this can be achieved is to ask the necessary questions, do the appropriate deep dive discovery over the course of the relationship development process so that I have an exceptionally clear understanding of my client's objectives and needs related to lifestyle desires, their families, financial management, goal accomplishments, peace of mind, lifetime fulfillment. My job is much more significant than just money management, on and on. This is the vision that you're painting, right? And out of these types of things, you will be able to extract what you're interviewing for. So core methodology, be curious. My client relationships must be built on an in-depth discovery process. I must ask the right questions, not on the fly, but based on an intelligent, prepared, and repeatable process. I seek to understand how to work with my clients to provide a genuine sense of control over their financial lives, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the core methodology. I will use the following tools, right? A team-based approach in this instance, and this is a real life example of something that I did for a client. So in this instance, a team-based approach was important. A thoughtful question-based discovery process, comprehensive financial planning, pay particular attention to the protection need. What's important to this institution that I did this for? Regular, high-quality, meaningful, in-person client needs. So core methodology. So the results, revenue growth, right? We provide value and receive value in return in the form of revenue. As the value we provide grows, our revenue grows. Gathering additional assets, managing the majority of my clients' assets, retention of client relationships, referrals of new clients from existing devoted clients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those are examples of how you build this, right? So... Before I get into this value proposition piece, once you have all of this that I described, then it becomes very easy to extract those decision-making factors, create a set of interview questions, and create the assessment grid. Your value proposition, this is equally as important. You don't want to start recruiting without any bullets in your gun, so to speak. And what I mean by that is you have to be really good at describing to a candidate the value proposition of working with your organization. You really need to obsess over it. It just, it can't be spontaneous. It has to be well thought out and documented. You literally have to create a document that you read over and refine, et cetera. And it becomes second nature to you when you're meeting with somebody. So define the benefits of working with your organization. And it should include, and this is for highly functional organizations, it should include leveraging cross-departmental relationships, right? So the biggest value you can provide to an advisor that's coming from, let's say, the independent space or another less functional institution is the ability for them to work with those centers of influence in your institution, whether they be loan officers, business bankers, private bankers, whatever it might be. If you can create highly functional relationships that are cross-departmental, and advising your institution will do better than any independent position th that they're going to be in because they just don't have that leverage. But that has to be part of your value proposition, but it has to be real. It has to be true. You have to have cooperation from those other departments. You can't have silos and lack of trust. So you have to work on that. And that last bullet point, it should be reinforced. That value proposition should be reinforced by everybody that interviews any candidates that you're interested in. Okay, I'm stopping, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was actually uh, just thinking about that, really obsessing over the value proposition. That's really a good thing. And it, it helps when you're translating that over to your recruiter as well to make sure they understand the value proposition and your HR folks as well. So it just, it really goes across the board with that. Why would someone with 15 clients want to work uh, in a financial institution program? 
so a lot of it has to do with what I was referring to in cross-departmental, highly functional cross-departmental organizations. Think of that team of three. They have 15 very wealthy families that their business is based off of. Those, and they manage all the finance finances for those families. Those families have needs that a financial institution, in theory, can service. They saw Truist as an institution that can bring um, those additional resources to those 15 families in a very effective way that that enable that team of three to increase the value proposition that they provide as members of that organization. So they basically look at themselves as independent advisors inside a what what they hope is a highly functional organization that they can leverage to the benefit of their clients. So whoever recruited them did a really good job in selling the value proposition of working for Truist. Now, they came from Wells Fargo. That was where they were last and they moved to Truist. So there were some there was some stuff going on in Wells that was uh, that they weren't happy with, so that had something to do with it and they saw Truist as better being able to serve their clients. So that's the bottom line. Can you speak to the value proposition of financial institutions, which is along the same lines? Should they be promoting, what value proposition should they be promoting when they're trying to recruit advisors currently in another channel, like from an independent channel and RIAs? And then how are the most successful programs pitching the benefits to the advisors of working in the financial institution channel. So, so we have to somewhat shift our mindset here. And we have to think about if our institutions, and it doesn't matter if you're in a bank or credit union, if our institutions are working in a highly functional manner. So let me back up here. Here's the simplest way to think about it. If you're an advisor, the only way that you're going to win the race to gather assets is by serving all of the needs of your clients. That's the only way you can do that. If you're a financial institution, it's the same, right? So many of you have heard me talk about this, but what are the needs of your clients? There are only six categorical needs, right? There's the savings and liquidity, credit, income now, income later, protection and legacy. That's it. So if you're an independent advisor, or if you work with an RIA and you look across those six needs, can your institution not your institution, can your practice as an independent advisor or even an RIA effectively service all six of those needs? If you're an independent advisor, the answer is no, unless you're partnering with outside institutions that you're sharing revenue with. And the, the same is the case for a lot of RIAs. Now, if you're in a bank, think about those six core needs, savings and liquidity. Yep, you can service that. If you're doing a great job partnering with the bank, yep, you can service that. Credit, yep, you can service that. Income now, the shorter term goals, buying a house, buying a car, sending your kid to college, Yep, you can service that. Income later, retirement oriented. Yep, got that covered. Protection, if you're good, you got that covered, right? The, the, your institution offers all this stuff. Legacy, absolutely, you can cover that, especially if your institution has a trust department. So for, and let's take an independent advisor. So for an independent advisor that you're talking to, you can say, you should be able to say, listen, our institution can cover all of these needs. And if you think about what you're bringing to the table as an advisor, and you think about those six needs, we as an institution can cover about 2.3 of those needs and you got the rest of it, right? And that's why we need you. We realize that and we will allow you to work with our business bankers, our trust department, our private bankers or whatever, because we have constructed highly functional cross-departmental relationships. So we're going to give you more leverage in our institution that you will have in any other institution, especially if you're coming from the independent space because your clients are going to value a team-based approach and you can bring a team to bear once, once you establish those relationships with our internal subject matter experts, right? So the, those are the types of dialogues you ha dialogue you have to have, but it can't be BS. It has to be real, right? You have to make sure that you are, as the head of wealth management, meeting with the other people in your organization and saying, here's what we have to do to make sure wealth assets do not leave our institution these are the barriers we have to break down. We have to eliminate these silos. We have to have our advisors working with the critical centers of influence in the institution. We realize that the recruiting for the best advisors maybe is a team approach, and we're willing to involve you in that. 
But there's a reason why we need to do this because otherwise we're going to lose the race to gather assets because everybody else is trying to suck assets out of our institution into theirs. We need to be better at maintaining those wealth assets. Um, no BS. I like that. Yeah. All right. But, so when you look at some of the best questions, best programs out there, what have they done differently as it relates to building their advisor force? So there are a number of things, but the most important is, I mentioned this before, not being limited by their bubble. So thinking outside their bubble and realizing the difference between a true wealth advisor, a branch-based advisor, an associate advisor, and a remote advisor, and having different recruiting schemes and strategies for each, but also tiering the advisor for us. You don't have to have all those tiers, but you should have more than just branch-based advisors, right? Depending on the size of your program, but also leveraging that tiered advisor force from the standpoint of promoting the career path that exists within your institution, having a good value proposition pitch and knowing exactly what you're recruiting for. So there's a passion behind recruiting. The best institutions out there relative to their performance in wealth management literally never stop recruiting ever. And when they're sitting in front of that right person, they know it. And whether they have technically an opening or not, they hire that person and they make it work. They make an opening. Literally, that's what they do. And they're obsessed over it. And they realize that your program is only as good as your advisors because that's the face of your program. The impression that your program makes is based on the advisor sitting in front of clients that's the impression. And the better your advisors, the better the impression, the more professional you're going to come across as an institution, the better the client experience is going to be, et cetera. So the best programs out there will obsess over the type of advisor. And they know they have a very clear vision of the type of, a cl the, of client experience they want to offer. And they realize that the advisor is the face of that client experience and they're recruiting uh, yeah. accordingly. And they're, they never stop recruiting. Always be recruiting. A-B-R. Honey, you actually had a question. Yeah, I did. And it's all related to this. I'm sure everybody on the call feels this. There's the post-pandemic shift. There's the shift in second story advisor, that sort of thing. But I'm just wondering, Scott, to you and the entire audience here, how do we help financial institutions get out of mediocre sort of a feeling about if I hire a financial advisor, their pay, that sort of thing. We just, we have to keep them within the, the bank and the credit union themselves, as opposed to thinking about like super successful ways uh, to be able to unleash these different levels of recruiting for financial advisors, because we're recruiting every day for our partners. And sometimes what happens is we could get a very successful candidate, but nobody wants to pay for them. They like they want them, but they don't want to pay for them, that kind of thing. And I'm just seeing this, this huge shift. And I know we have to do what we call, call here our missionary work to educate folks about that. So in, anything about not trying to keep the financial advisor as a regular employee? Yes. Yes. So I, not only do I have thoughts on that, but the thoughts bring me back to the white paper that we did together two years ago, the value of an investment program, because it's completely related. So what do I mean by that? There, and your question is a good one, because there are too many institutions that have issues with the fact that their best advisors are making more than some of the executives president. running the institution. So they get all twisted about that. And, and they're missing, they're clearly missing the big picture. Because what is the reality? The reality is when you have a good wealth advisor, let's talk about a number of things. So this was in the, the white paper we did together. One is retention of clients of the institution dramatically increases, right? So, the, so there's typically 14% turnover of in, uh, clients of banks and credit unions. When they have an investment account and a wealth management relationship, it goes down to 3%, right? So the institution is benefiting from that. Two, the amount of assets that come to the institution more than doubles after the first year of a wealth management relationship with a client, right? So the halo effect is huge of having wealth managers work with institution clients 
and having those clients bring more and more assets into that institution. And we know from a lot of research, and Ken Kara has done a lot of good research on this as well, that wealth clients use more of the institution's products and services, clearly. So we need to hammer into the heads of executives running these institutions that don't be short-sighted. The halo effect is huge. And so what? A few people make more than you. Your bonus is going to be better because of them. So do you want to, as an institution, retain assets or lose assets? That's the bottom line. Make your choice. Let's get over this. Move on. Okay. Awesome. I have a couple more questions. So what's working to recruit new people into the industry and set them up for success? So creating the bench, uh, so to speak. It's a challenge when the institution doesn't have a dedicated training program, but it's a huge need as existing advisors don't want to move. So in recruiting, it's a huge need, obviously, to bring in these new advisors to the industry. What have you seen as best practices in creating this bench? Yeah. So there are two separate questions there. One is existing advisors. The other is new advisors. Let's talk about new advisors because I think that's really important. Recruiting existing advisors is a specialty game right there. You have to be really good at it. And we talked about some of the things you have to do there, which includes having a clear vision, having that North Star of what you're recruiting for and having the, the value proposition pitch ready to go. All right. So let's push that aside for a second as we talked about that. Let's talk about recruiting bench strength or recruiting new advisors into the industry. We, I think as a channel, have been guilty of not being on our game as it relates to recruiting out of college, colleges specifically, or recruiting the next geners. So we have to change our pitch a bit, all right? So the value proposition, here's the reality. So I'll give you an extreme example. This is many of Frank Consalo, right? So he runs the program at City, but he was an advisor. And he was a really good advisor. So he he was really good at developing relationships. And he on one of our podcasts, he tells a story of a couple that were clients of his that he worked with. And one day he got a call from the, and he worked, and I, and I say this specifically, a couple, and he worked with both of them. He didn't just pay attention to the guy or the woman. It was, he worked with both of them. One day he got a call from the woman and she said, Frank, my husband passed. They were older at this point, obviously. My husband passed and I'm not sure what to do. And Frank, after expressing condolences and all that, said, don't worry, we, you're in good shape. We have a good life insurance policy. We have your assets are, are, are being managed appropriately. You have nothing to worry about, blah, blah, blah. And he went through it. She said, no, Frank, you don't understand. He just passed. He's in bed next to me. I don't know what to do. Frank was the first call that she made. So talk about relationship building. So what's the point of that, right? He helped them through all phases of their life, get to the point where they were very comfortable in retirement and made sure she was even comfortable after her husband passed. The point is there's social relevance in doing that. If we're doing our jobs the way we should be, we are truly helping people live better lives. We're helping them more easily take care of their loved ones. We're helping them put kids through college or whatever it is. That message that there is social relevance in what we do resonates with today's next geners. And we don't use that. We don't leverage it enough in the recruiting process. There are some really good kids, I'll use the term kids out there, that that are true you know, professionals in grooming that we need to recruit but we need to use that, that, that language of, of social relevance and the importance of what we do to bring people into our channel. But then we need to back that up with good training that relates to that. So how do you change people's lives? How do you work with them in such a way where you're really understanding their needs and bringing the resources we have to bear? So if you're a bank or a credit union that leverages third-party broker-dealers, you don't have a training department of your own, but they do. I mean, Satara, you guys have good training, right? So, so there's a partnership that comes into play and you can help provide the training for those new recruits that you're trying to grow bench strength from. You can easily put together a training program for your clients. So that's the type of, so that's the message you have to use. And then you have to have that career pathing and training in place once you bring in those new recruits, but it has to be, you have to follow through on it, right? You can't just, the message just can't be lip, lip service. You have to believe it. You have to have a passion for it. And you have to have everything aligned. So the discussions you have with those recruits become reality once they hit the ground running in your institution. 
All right, golden handcuffs. What can programs do to retain the advisors they currently have? So if you think of everything we talked about, and especially the part that I discussed the value of working in a financial institution and the relationships that you can develop inside that institution that you can bring to bear to your clients, that's a, a, the best golden handcuff you can create, right? If they have strong relationships inside your institution, they're much less likely to leave. But you also have to realize, especially as it relates to the age of a lot of our advisors, that you have to have a realistic, defined succession plan. So they need to know once they get towards the end of their careers that the last five years, perhaps three years, whatever your succession plan is, looks like this. And this is how they will benefit from building a really good book of business. And you have deferred benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Also, you should as an institution. But if you have an institution that enables them to develop really good internal relationships and referral sources, then you have a good defined succession plan for the appropriate stage in their career. And it's a staged succession plan over the course of years. And then you have some deferred benefits that you've built into it. From where I sit, that's probably the, the best you can do, right? But you need to be good to your employees. That's the key. Yeah. And you need to have an environment that enables them to thrive because there are not silos. There are not there's not lack of trust between departments. And so they, they have that, the camaraderie that exists in a highly functional organization that makes it much less likely for them to think the grass is greener on the other side. Because once you're standing on the grass, it's seldom as green as you think it is, right? Mm-hmm. Always. All right. What does Scott see as a best practice for managers producing or not? He is a producing um, manager and he has very limited time. So how, what are your best practices for producing managers? So it's a good question, and it's a tough one to answer because there's not enough research on it, but I can answer it anecdotally. And that is the best producing... Ma- so there's a value to being a producing manager because you're keeping your, your toe in that pool of producers and you can better relate to other producers that you're managing. It gets tough to do if you have too big of a team that you're managing. So there's a balancing act that has to be done. But I think the answer to the question from what I can tell is that if you're going to be a producing manager, do not try and keep too many clients in your book. And that's hard because you're going to have to give up some of your clients to somebody else that you trust. But you really don't want to be managing too many clients because it becomes too distracting. And if you do maintain too many clients, you you really have to make a choice. Do you really want to be a manager or do you really want to be a producer? So I've seen, I've worked with managers that were producing managers and three years down the road of trying to optimize their program, literally they say, uncle, I just can't do this. I'm going back to production because I'm not happy being a manager. Now, I've seen the other happen too, that all right, there's just too much here on my plate from a management standpoint. I'm going to have to give up all my clients. And eventually that choice has to be made. Now, it doesn't always have to be made. If your sphere of influence, if your advisor base that you're managing doesn't get too large, you can keep 20, 25 clients in your book, whatever that number is. But you really have to be very cognizant of that balancing act and make sure that you're not working both ends towards the middle and you're not doing either good. So it's not impossible to be a producing manager. You just have to be really good at that juggling and not over commit on the book side of your business if your job is primarily to be a manager. All right. What about support staff for advisors? How do we determine what they need as good support is key? How do we recruit there? And what do we look for? Yeah, so that's part of building bench strength, right? I mean, that support staff, they may become your advisors of the future or not, but in either case, if recruited properly, they become valuable components of the institution. There are some metrics you can use for when an advisor needs support, at what level of productivity. Some of the best structures I've seen leave some of that to the advisor. And what I mean by that is you may have a level where you say, all right, the institution will pay for a sales assistant once you hit this level of production. You can have a sales assistant before that, but you're going to have to contribute mm-hmm. to the to what we pay that sales assistant. So there's a split there. And that kind of weeds out those that are really committed or, or not, because a, a good advisor realizes that if they can delegate some more, they'll grow their business to get to that level where 
it, that person is going to be paid for anyway. So it's really uh, a test of the passion uh, of the advisor. Well, off the top of my head, I haven't looked at those stats recently, uh, what level you should be paying for a sales assistant. I have that. We may even be doing some very specific research about sales assistants because I think they're becoming more and more uh, important as wealth advisors become more more prominent in our channel. They need assistance. So kind of stay tuned. I don't have a great answer for that, but I do think that it's important to give the advisors flexibility for when they want to bring on a sales assistant, especially as it relates to they can pay for part of it before they hit the right levels, but then you'll cover it once they hit the appropriate levels. So I can have a one-off discussion with any of you that are interested in that once I refresh my memory with some, I haven't looked at that research in a while, but I know I think, we have some stats on it. And I think Scott, this might be old information. Of course, now with the post-pandemic, everything's blown out of the water. We kind of have to start from scratch, but I, I think we use a benchmark of, of about 400 to 500,000 in GDC. Yeah, and that's, that's what I but, yeah. But again, to your point, I think it really depends upon the type of advisor that it is and the support that they need. And going back to your advisor that was only managing 15 clients, what type of sales support do they actually need? All three advisors, because there were three advisors, correct, supporting 15, obviously high net worth clients. Yeah. But how much real support as far as sales assistance would a team like that need? And if that's what we're going for with some of these higher net worth advisors. Yeah, so it's interesting, this team of three, the construction of the team was there was a, a wealth advisor, mm -hmm. a financial planner, and a portfolio manager. Those are the three on the team. I'm sure the supported by support staff, mm -hmm. I didn't get into that discussion because uh, we ended up talking about music and stuff like that. We got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I know we talked about a lot today, a lot of good stuff. I really am that North Star advisor asking the right questions when you're looking for an advisor. I think that's really important, really defining the vision and mission statement of what you're looking for. And then matching that to the right advisor is always important. Uh, the bench or the niche advisor, I think that's, that's really good. Um, looking for someone specifically like in the business department, but allowing those individuals to help interview uh, the candidate. I think that's also great so that you can mesh the personalities. That's super important as well. And then always be recruiting. So we'll let Scott breathe. I could talk to him all night about all of this great information and more. Scott is full of uh, knowledge. So always be recruiting. And thank you guys so much. Hi, Bob Mattel again. Scott and I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Industry Leadership and Success. We hope you found the discussion enjoyable and valuable. We'd again like to thank Satera for partnering with us to make this episode possible. Don't forget to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Untangling Fintech and BISA Industry Trend Watch. See you next episode.